well, hey, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers at Regency. I just wanted to thank you for checking out this message. We're praying that God uses this message to draw your heart closer to Him. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we want to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. If you'd like to find out more information about Regency or to check out some other resources, visit our website at regencycc.org. So there's this scene in the life of Jesus in Matthew 14, and it had to have been a moment that was one of those moments that you never forget about. Have you ever experienced one of those moments? It, it's, you just have this really amazing day, and the memories of it stick with you forever. In fact, I know that that's what happened to those disciples who were there with Jesus, because in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all write about this one event, this one moment in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's the only miracle that Jesus performed that all four Gospel writers write about it. It was this, that day when Jesus had woke up early in the morning and the crowds start to gather around him and he's teaching about the kingdom of God and he's healing the sick. And as the crowd grows and grows, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go figure out how can we, uh, how can we feed them. And the crowd, Matthew tells us, is 5,000 men plus women and children. Some have estimated the crowd to be 10,000 people, maybe even upwards of 15,000 people. So the disciples are scrambling, trying to figure out, how are we going to feed this massive crowd? What are we going to do? And the end of the day is coming, and Jesus calls them together, and he basically says, hey, what, what are your ideas? What do you got? And one idea is like, just send them away. They're, they're, we can't feed a crowd this size. Somebody else, I almost wonder if it's kind of sarcastically, is like, I mean... We got this kid's little Happy Meal. He's got a sack lunch over here that his mom sent him with. He's got five little pieces of bread, five little loaves of bread, and two fish. And that's what we got. And so Jesus tells them, have the crowd sit in groups of 50 and hundreds. He takes the bread, he prays over it, and he breaks it, and he hands it to the disciples, and they begin to pass it out. And I would just have loved to have seen the amazement on their face as they're handing out bread, and they look back into their basket, and there's more bread. And they hand it and empty it out, and they look back, and there's more bread. And it just keeps replenishing itself. In fact, they feed this massive crowd all that they want to eat, and they even have leftovers. And so they start collecting the leftovers. And you want to guess how many baskets they filled with leftovers? Twelve. One for each disciple of Jesus to take home. Not only to take home to feed their family, but to remember forever that Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. Right after that, this amazing moment of faith, I want to pick up in the text in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his, his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. They're going to cross over the Sea of Galilee while Jesus dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So they hop out onto this boat, they get out onto the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden this storm comes up upon them. And they've been battling this storm all night long. In fact, in verse 25 it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they probably got into the boat right about sunset, and now they've been battling this storm we could imagine for about seven, eight, nine, maybe even ten hours, they've been battling this storm, bailing water, rowing against the wind, trying to get to the other side. And they're getting stressed because they know that things are getting pretty serious. And then it says, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. A duh. 
Uh, How would you react if you saw someone walking in the night on top of the water during a storm? I would be so afraid. In fact, they hollered out, it's a ghost, because that and aliens are the only two logical explanations for what they are witnessing. Jesus would have been the last on the list as to possible explanations for what in the world we are seeing. And they cried out in fear. That would have been fun to watch. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. That's a phenomenal line right there. Don't forget, it's nighttime. They're in a boat on a lake. It's just a giant lake. It's not really an ocean. It's a giant lake. Water's breaking over the side. The wind's howling. It's raining. And Jesus is speaking. You can imagine it's kind of hard to hear. Would it not be? And all he says is, it's me. It's I. How many people in your life do you have that if your phone rings and they say, hey, you know exactly who it is, that's all they have to say. I'm not talking about because you recognize the number. I'm just talking about you recognize the voice. My guess is you could fit them on one, maybe two hands. There are so few people that we know their voice so well that they don't have to tell us who it is. They just know exactly who it is. I remember I was in high school. We had gone on a mission trip to South America. Everything went wrong in order for us to get there, and it was a miracle that we even got back home. We got back to the United States a day later after we were supposed to leave. That's fun. When you can't call home and tell them, hey, we're not going to be back at this time because, you know, this was before everybody carried cell phones, couldn't send text messages. This is when we called collect. Do you remember making collect calls? Those are fun. I made one in my life. It was in the Miami airport because we had finally landed back in the United States and my parents could at least breathe a sigh of relief that we were back in the U.S. of A. That at the worst, all they had to do was drive from Montgomery, Alabama, to Miami, Florida, to come pick us up because we were stranded there as well. So I called Collect, and you remember making a Collect call, it rings, and then they answer, they say, hello, and it says, you have a Collect call from, and you have like three seconds, it's a short amount of time to say who it is, okay? Now what I did not say is my father answered the phone, I didn't say, it's your son Eric, the one who was lost and stranded in South America, I didn't say that, I just simply said, you have a Collect call from, I said, your baby boy. All I had to say, I could have said your favorite child, but there could have been some confusion there. So I just went with your baby boy. He only had one youngest son. I didn't want him to get confused thinking it was my other brother. He knew exactly who it was. I I can recognize my wife's cough in an audience, and I know that that's her. There's certain voices that you hear that you know exactly who it is. What I find fascinating is the disciples didn't go, who is it? It's Who? They know it's Jesus because they know his voice. In fact, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. What a statement. I wonder if Peter's just kind of feeling himself, right? He's feeling a little bold. There's Jesus. If it's really you, Lord, call me out there. And Jesus says, come. It's like that time that you made a dare or somebody dared you to do something. And you're like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. And then they're like, prove it. And now, now you've got to act. It's almost like that for Peter. Now he's got to really do it. He said, Lord, if it's you, call me out there. Come on, Peter. Let's see what he does. I would have loved to have witnessed this, not to have been on the boat because I don't like bad weather that much, but to have just seen this maybe played out in a movie. Maybe if we could have had a replay or a reenactment of what it looks like because I want to know how does Peter get out of the boat? Does he just like stand up on the side and jump? Does he swan dive? Does he cannonball? Because here's what I know about you and about me. Every time you've gotten into a body of water, You've gone under. 
whether you stepped in it, whether you put your hand in it, whether you cannonballed into a pool every time you went under, unless it was frozen, and then that's just a dirty trick, right? I wonder if Peter, like, dips his toe over the edge. Does he lean over and touch to see if what was once liquid is now solid? Or does he just stand up and start walking? Either way, he's walking to Jesus. And in this moment that he's walking on the water to Jesus, he is totally trusting in Jesus' ability to cause him to walk on the water. Because that's what he said. Lord, if it's you, call me out to you on the water. Command me to be able to do what you're doing. He's fully trusting in Jesus. And then it says uh, that uh, in verse 30, then he saw the wind and he was afraid. It's not that it's not that all of a sudden he's like, hey, it's raining. It's that he recognized something's not right. I shouldn't be doing this. There's this fine line between that's really awesome and that's really crazy. Am I right? Maybe you've been involved in something like that where you're like, this is amazing. This is insane. Why are we doing this? Right? There's been a couple of moments in my life and it's such a fine line and it changes like that. And that's what happens with Peter. At first, he's walking on the water. This is awesome. I'm walking on the, wait, I'm walking on water? I'm not supposed to be walking on water. You're right, Peter. You're not supposed to be. And then he begins to trust in himself. And as soon as he does, he sinks. He cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Jesus reaches down with his hand, pulls him up out of the water. And then in verse 31, Jesus said to him, O you of little faith. If I'm just being honest with you, I have a hard time with that line. Because when I read this, I think that's one of the, Peter, what Peter does is one of the greatest demonstrations of faith I've ever seen. Because I'll just go ahead and tell you, if I'm in the boat and I'm one of the 12 disciples, I'm not the guy who gets out. I'm going to let Peter go first and find out what happens for him. And then when he sinks, I'm going to be like, see, I told you so. Shouldn't have done that. Bad idea. So if Peter had a little faith, what about the other disciples? I mean, they had no faith at all. And if that's the greatest demonstration of faith I've ever, one of the greatest demonstrations of faith I've ever read about, what does that say about my definition of faith? How is that little faith when I think that's a tremendous act of faith? I mean, I know it didn't turn out right, but the first step, the few steps of walking on the water is a great exercise of faith. Why did Jesus say, oh, you of little faith? Well, it's actually a phrase that he used several times, always talking to his disciples. And each time he says this phrase, he's always calling out to them something that they missed, something really important. I think sometimes we read into it that he's getting on to them. I don't think he's getting on to Peter. I think he's trying to get Peter to recognize Man, you missed it. You had it. You were there. You were trusting in me walking on the water. And then you misplaced your trust, put it back in yourself, and you sank. Your faith changed. And then he asked this question that I want us to think about today. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? So today we're finishing up this series that we've been in for the last five weeks called Questions from Jesus. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at different questions that Jesus has asked those who are in his audience. Questions like, do you love me? Why do you worry? Uh, Who do you say that I am? Great questions that Jesus not only asked people in his time, but he's asking us as well. And today I want us to look at this question, why did you doubt? We all go through seasons of doubt. Every one of us. I remember for me the first time I really dealt with serious doubt I was a freshman in Bible college and I was a Bible major I wasn't supposed to struggle with doubt I'm at Bible college learning how to help people who deal with doubt 
I'm at Bible college learning how to help people grow in their faith, and here I am having the greatest faith crisis of my life up until that point. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't think I could tell anybody. They'd be so ashamed of me to know that here I am sitting in a Bible class learning things that I don't even know if I believe anymore. I really struggled. I came through that, and my faith was encouraged through a series of people in my life. And then it was a few years later. I was 24 years old. I was working as a youth minister, and our family dealt with one of the greatest tragedies that I have ever experienced in my life and hope I never experience anything like it again. And it shook my faith to the core. And I I spent a lot of time, a while, really struggling with, is God really good? Because if God is really good, then why is this happening? And it was a series of things that happened, one right after the other, where I just simply, I really struggled. But you know what? I was still showing up at church on Sunday. I pretended like nothing was wrong. I sat in church. I sang the songs. I said amen. I closed my eyes during the prayer. I even went to Bible class and taught a group of teenagers. None of them ever knew. Taught them things that I didn't even know if I believed at the time. Really struggling in believing is God truly good. That's not the last time I've struggled with doubt. If you're here today and you're really battling doubt, doubting in God's goodness, doubting in God's love, I hope you understand, first off, I'm glad you're here. Secondly, you're welcome here because we all struggle with doubt. The problem is not that we doubt. The problem is that we pretend like we don't. The problem is that we walk into the door, we put a smile on our face when there's all this conflict in our heart and in our mind, and we pretend like it's not happening. And it is. And it's okay, because God understands. So if you're here today and you're battling doubt, I want you to know you're in good company. Some of us may never admit it, but we're struggling with it. We're going to talk at the end that I hope you'll confess it in just a little bit. But I want you to know you're in good company. In fact, as you read through the Bible, what you'll find is that God used people who doubted all the time. The Bible is filled with people who doubted. Job, the whole book of Job is about a man who's struggling with, is God really good? Job had lost his family. He had lost everything he owned. He's battling his health. And he didn't do anything wrong. At least he didn't think he did anything wrong. And there are many times he's very honest with God. God, why is this happening? God, I'm a righteous person. Why am I going through this? And he gets very bold in some of the things that he says to God. He's really struggling with his doubt. Moses struggled whether or not God could use him to deliver Israel out of Egypt. Uh, there, there are many others. Sarah doubted that God could cause a retired woman to have a baby. You might doubt that too. Uh, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Gideon doubted that God was going to use him to save Israel. In fact, he asked for a sign three times. If you had one miracle happen in your life, would you ask God to do it again because you didn't believe it? Gideon asked three times. Many of David's psalms are about his doubts, especially during the time in which he's being hunted by Saul, who's trying to kill him, and he's doubting in God's plan. Mary doubted that God was going to use her to bring baby Jesus, the Savior, into the world. And by the way, so did her fiancé. John the Baptist wondered if Jesus really was the Son of God while he's sitting in a prison cell. And what he doesn't realize is that he's never going to walk out because a short time later he's going to be executed for his uh, belief in Jesus and his stand for what was right. Thomas doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead and it wasn't until Jesus walked into the room and showed him the scars in his hands and in his feet that Thomas finally believed. Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, 
believed and doubted that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, he went to the extreme that he consented to the death of Christians and threw other Jesus followers in jail, all because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And God used him to write over half of your Bible. It's amazing. God has always used people who doubted. And so if you're wondering, does God love me even if I'm battling doubts? Yes. Yes, he loves you. In fact, not only does he love you, but he will use you during your doubt. Some of God's greatest glory is achieved in your greatest seasons of doubt. But if you think about it, it's because doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is a part of faith. Faith, uh, Doubt is actually required to have faith. Follow me here. Doubt is like the question mark. If there's ever a question that you have about God, it's because there's a little bit of doubt. And there are things that you're going to have to believe and trust, which is what we call faith, because you can't fully prove it. That's why it's called faith. There's always going to be a little bit of doubt in the back of your mind. There's always going to be a little bit of area that you struggle in truly believing. That's because it's faith. If you didn't struggle to believe it even a little bit, it wouldn't be called faith. There are things that we struggle to understand about God because we simply can't understand them. It's because doubt is required to have faith. Have you ever said, I don't know if I can do that? Maybe you were asked to do something or asked to lead something or you felt like God was calling you to serve in a certain way. You said, ah, I don't know if I can do that. That's doubt. And if you step out and do it, You have glorified God through your faith, and that faith began in your doubt. Doubt is a part of your faith. But also understand this. Doubt is rarely pure. There is usually, if not always, something undergirding what's going on in your life and in your heart that is creating doubt. And I think this is why God understands that we have doubts. There are things that happen that shake our faith and confidence in God, things that happen in life. Would you agree sometimes life is just absolutely cruel? It's difficult. There are things that we deal with on a regular basis that we have no explanation for, that all we're left with are questions, and it creates doubts because doubts are the question marks of our faith. Sometimes we deal with tragic circumstances, and it creates doubt in our heart. Sometimes there are things that we expect God to do that he doesn't do, and it creates doubt. Maybe there was a time that you really prayed for something. I mean, you prayed like you had never prayed before. Maybe it was prayer for healing, or maybe it was prayer for God to intercede, or it was prayer for deliverance from some type of addiction. You fasted over it. You prayed over it. You spent so much time on your knees just pouring your heart out to God. Nothing changed. You didn't get the answer you were hoping for. Sometimes it can create doubt in our life. Sometimes there are things that just happen in life that we don't really understand. We, we struggle with it's created by certain circumstances. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's, it's someone broke your heart. Maybe it's just a series of trials, one right after the other, and you're thinking, how much longer do I have to endure? God, how can you be so good if all of this bad stuff is happening to me in our world? Doubt's real. It's something that we need to acknowledge. In fact, do you know the Bible's pretty honest about doubt? There's a psalm we're going to read in just a moment, written by a man named Asaph. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was, if you follow me, he was like Israel's worship minister, okay? 
He was basically in charge of leading Israel in worship to God. He wrote 12 or 13 psalms that are very phenomenal, but there's one that is so honest. And Asaph opens his heart to let us know how he's really struggling with doubt because of some things that are going on in his life, because doubting is rarely pure. And in this psalm, we're going to read in verse 1 in just a moment. You've got to understand verse 1 is written after his season of doubt, not before. It's kind of his conclusion. He starts with his concluding statement. So you've got to read that, and then you've got to get into the doubt. So let's read it together. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Asaph says, God is truly good to Israel, to those who have pure hearts. That's his conclusion, okay? He's finally come back to that understanding. God really is good to Israel, to those who have pure hearts. But now let's get into his season of doubt. But I had almost stopped believing. I had almost lost my faith. Let's stop right there. That's a profound statement of one of Israel's leaders to make. Do you think he's still going to the temple leading God's people, leading Israel in worship while he's having this crisis of faith? Absolutely. In fact, he basically tells you that as you read through the psalm. And he didn't tell anybody about it because he didn't feel like he could tell anybody about it. I mean, what's it going to look like for Israel's worship minister to stand up and say, I don't know if God really loves us. Let's worship together. That's going to be kind of a weird worship service that day, would it not be? He had almost lost his faith. Why? What's underlying his doubt? He was jealous. He was jealous of proud people. He saw wicked people doing so well. He keeps going. He says, they are not suffering. They are healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like the rest of us. They don't have problems like other people. He's looking at how people live who don't follow after God. And he's like, they're living a better life than I am. They have no struggles. They're having no difficulties. And here I am, I'm struggling every day. I'm having a hard time. God, I'm giving my whole life to you and trying to devote myself to you. And those that don't have it easier than me. And then he says in verse 12, these people are wicked, always at ease, and they're getting richer. What's, what, what's up with this? Why have I kept my heart pure? Why have I kept my hands from doing wrong? Do you hear his honesty? Man, why did God leave something so brutally honest and transparent for us? Because he wants us to read it and to feel okay if this is where you are. If you're sitting here today battling doubt, battling the goodness of God, with Asaph, you're in good company. He says, I don't understand it. I tried to understand all this in verse 16, but it was too hard for me to see. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You've got to understand, folks, this went on for a period of time. I don't know how long, but it wasn't a day, it wasn't a week. It was critical enough that he basically journaled about it and wrote a psalm about it. He's really struggling. I don't understand why this is. How many times did he pray to God? How many times did he just stop praying because he didn't know what to do? How many times did he walk into the temple, basically to his job to lead Israel in worship, and just pretend like he believed in the goodness of God? And he said things like, God is good, and they would respond all the time, and he'd respond all the time. They'd respond, God is good, and there was nothing in his heart that was convicted by that statement. He didn't believe it. In fact, he didn't know if God was good. He struggled to understand it for a period of time. Until he says, I went to the temple of God. Then I understood. Then I regained my perspective. Verse 26, my body and my mind may become weak, but God is my strength. He is mine forever. Understand this. What I don't think Asaph is saying is if you just go to church, all your doubts are going to be erased. That is not the case. In fact, if you think that's going to happen, don't lie to yourself anymore. Church is not going to erase all your doubts. Okay? 
You can sit here and go through the motions and doubt till the day you die. It will not fix all of your problems. Being in the presence of God is going to help you gain understanding. Church has a place in helping you find answers and understanding to your doubts. But it's not just the simple apply it solution. But don't forget what Asaph said. It wasn't until I was in the presence of God, regularly in his presence, that I understood. Listen to what he's saying and what he's not saying. He didn't say all of my doubts were erased. He said I understood. I gained greater understanding. Did he still have questions? Yes. Why do the wicked still do well, Asaph? He'd probably say, I don't know, but they just do. But you know what? God's going to take care of it all. He gained understanding. And I believe that in the presence of God, you will find understanding. So if you are struggling with doubt, there's two things I want you to do. Number one, confess it. You've got to confess it. You've got to be honest about your doubts. Confess it to God. He can handle it. Spend time in prayer. God, I don't know if I believe. God, I am struggling to understand why this is happening. He can handle it. Don't feel like you can't take it to God. God knows that as you search for truth, you will find it. Because he's got plenty to give you. He will handle it. He will not be disappointed. He will not cause bad things to happen to you because you are doubting. He will love you through it because he knows doubting is a part of our faith. So confess it. But secondly, lean in. Because sometimes our, our doubts can try to push us away from God. And that's what happened to Asaph, and sometimes it's what happens to us. But don't forget what he said. It wasn't until I went to the temple of God that at some point he decided, I'm going to lean into God, and I'm going to work through this and allow God to work through this in my life. And he leaned in, and God brought him greater understanding. So lean into him. Spend time in his presence. Be honest with him. Confess it. Struggle through it. And God's going to walk with you through it. And what I think you'll find is that when you come out of that season of doubt, your faith will be stronger than it's ever been. Will you still have doubts? Yes, your whole life. We all deal with doubt on a regular basis. But you can still have a strong faith. So why did you doubt? It's a really good question. It's a question that only you and God can answer. But here's what I hope you'll remember. Even if you're battling doubt today, God still loves you. God is still going to use you. And he will help you understand what could be causing and creating that doubt within your life. And you may never have all of your doubts answered, and that's okay. Doubting is a part of faith. But keep leaning into God, and he will keep leaning into you. Today, if there's something that we can assist you with, if you need prayers from this entire church family, we'd love to pray over you. If you want to give your life to Christ because you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're ready to be baptized, we'd love to assist you in that as well. But if you need to talk to somebody, don't leave here without talking to somebody. Find somebody that you feel comfortable with. Could be a friend, could be one of the shepherds, one of the ministers. Find somebody that you feel comfortable with. Set up a lunch appointment, do whatever. Just talk with them. Here's what I, here's what I promise you you're probably going to hear. When you say, I'm just really struggling with doubt, you're probably going to hear something like, yeah, me too. Me too. And you can walk together. Don't leave here today still struggling and feeling all alone. We're here for you. If we can help you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?